The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and crack open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in a good text tonight, Ephesians chapter 2. This is like dessert for dinner. You guys ready? Ephesians 2. And um, the, the title of this talk is The Story of Us, The Story of Us. So we're a pretty individualistic society, and we, we tend to think of things in terms of me and my, but, but really when you, you think about it, there's a lot of ways in which we're connected to a, a bigger tapestry or a bigger story. So I am my own person, I have my own story, but I'm also part of a family. And, and there are six of us in my immediate family. I've got my wife and my four kids. And my story is bigger than just me. It includes them. And so there's my story, but there's also our story, the story of the Bentley family. And you, you can take a step back and you can think that, about that through a broader lens, right? So we, we are individuals, but we're also per, part of a, a country. We're, we're part of America. So we have our own history, but we're also a part of American history. And you can think about that in the terms of, of what it means to be a believer as well, right? You, each of you who are believers in Jesus here tonight, you have your own personal, unique story. Uh, we call it your testimony. This is the story of how God found you and how God delivered you and how God saved you. But you're also part of a bigger family made up of other believers. They're your brothers and sisters in the faith. And there are elements to your story that mirror elements in my own. There are parts of our stories that overlap and intertwine. And so what we have here in Ephesians chapter 2 is not just... Paul's unique story, which he shares at other points in his letters. But what we have here is the story of us. This is the story of every single believer. If you're a Christian in, in here tonight, then this is your story as well as mine. And here's why that matters. You see, we need to know who we are. We need to know where we've come from. And we need to have an understanding of where we're going. And here's why. Until I know who I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going, until I know those things, I won't have a firm grasp on why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? In, in order for you to have an, an understanding of, of your purpose and your destiny, you have to have a, a wide-angle lens or understanding of what God has done in your life and in the life of every believer. I'll say it like this. Our identity is what informs our activity. If you don't know who you are, then you won't know what to do. So that's why this text matters so much. Let's go ahead and get into it there in verse 1. Paul says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is our story. And it's worth pointing out, where does our story begin? Our story begins with death. In verse 1, Paul talks about this when he says, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. To sin is to miss the mark. To transgress is to willfully disobey. And Paul says, that was the state of humanity. The Bible doesn't mince words. It calls us dead in sins and transgressions. Now, the the word there in the Greek for dead is nekros, N-E-K-R-O-S. And it literally speaks of a corpse. That's where we get our English word from, of corpse. And that pretty much sums up the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition apart from God. Without Christ, the Bible says you're not just in need of help. You're not just in bad shape. It says you are spiritually dead. Now, now hearing that is, is hard, right? You might think, I might have been pretty bad. I don't know. I wasn't perfect. I certainly was no angel. But I don't know if I would have described myself as dead. Well, if you think about it in this term, it might help shed some light on it. You see, it says that not just there are degrees of death, like it matters, right? So, so if you have, that's like one corpse looking at a guy who's way more dead, who's been dead way longer and saying, well, I'm not as dead as that guy. If you're dead, you're dead. And who really cares, right? So there's that famous line from The Princess Bride where Billy Crystal's character says of another character that he's not dead, he's just mostly dead, which is not us at all. We weren't on life support. We weren't just mostly dead. The Bible says that we were flatlined. If you think about it, the only difference between corpses is the amount of decay that they've undergone or that they've experienced. So you might have a corpse that, I don't know, it's only been dead for a couple of days, and it might look pretty good. Like morticians, they can put makeup on people and make them look almost as though they were Alive, And if you compared that corpse with some skeleton that's been in a crypt or in a grave that you dug up and it's been dead for hundreds of years, obviously this corpse over here is going to look a lot better. But again, it doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, they're, they're both dead. And, and according to the Bible, this is the state of humanity, dead. But if you look at verse 2, Paul goes on to say something interesting. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which, he says, you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So now you have dead men walking. You have zombies. They followed the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan in, in, in disobedience. So what gives? How can someone be simultaneously dead and living? Well, I found this story, and I, I think it kind of helps shed some light on it. And explain that, what that means to be both dead and alive. So the story goes way back when 
There was an artist who had this beautiful sculpture that he had put together of this angel. And he, he asked the master artist, Michelangelo, if he would come over and inspect his work of art. And Michelangelo obliged, and he came over, according to the story, and he inspected it from head to toe and looked at it from every possible angle. And then he stood back and he said, your sculpture only lacks one thing. Then he turned around and walked out the door and didn't say anything else. The, the artist was, was just dumbfounded. He couldn't think about what it was. He couldn't let it go. And he was too embarrassed to go ask himself what Michelangelo thought was missing from his sculpture. And so he, he sent his apprentice to go ask the master what was missing, what it lacked. And so he went and found Michelangelo in his own studio. And he said, what was it that the sculpture was lacking? And Michelangelo said, the only thing it lacked was life. And there's a lot of people out there like that. They've got everything. From a worldly perspective, they've got the house, they've got the career, they've got the family, they've got the, the job, they've got everything that a person could want. They've got the big bank account, bank account, but still on the inside, they're dead inside. And maybe that's you. You've got it all. And yet on the inside, you're dead, dead to the things of God. You lack life. You might be thriving outwardly, but inwardly you're falling apart. You're dead to the things of God, dead to the love of God, dead to the plan and the purpose of God for your life. The Apostle Paul, he said it like this in his letter to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 5, 6, those who live for pleasure are dead while they yet live. Again, so what that's saying is it's possible to have physical life and yet be spiritually dead simultaneously on the inside. And that is the position of every person who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. That was our condition, hopeless, helpless, spiritually lost, dead in our transgressions and sins. But then you come to verse 4, and it says this, but because of his great love for us, God, but because of his great love for us, God, but God. We were dead, but God. You got to take note of those two little monosyllabic words. When paired together, they form a truth that is bigger than any trial, trouble, or turmoil that you might find yourself in. There are so many but God scriptures, and each one of them is a treasure. Every time you find it, it becomes like a hinge that just swings the whole story in a completely new direction. Because your story might look one way, it might be headed one direction, but God enters the picture and everything changes. And we see this all throughout scripture. In fact, there are about three dozen or so but God verses in the Bible. And I think it's worth looking up all of them. I'm just going to throw a few of them at you. For one, there's this story in Genesis. You know how Joseph, he was, he was taken by his brothers. He was beaten up. He had the coat of many colors. And they wanted his coat. And they were jealous of him. And so they beat him up. And they took his coat, threw him in a pit, left him for dead, sold him as a slave to this band of traveling Egyptians. And Joseph has this big, wild ride of a story from there. And then at the end of his story, he's reunited with his brothers in Egypt. At this point, Joseph has ascended to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. 
And here his brothers are bowing before him. They don't recognize that it's him. And, and finally, there's this moment where he, he reveals himself to his brothers. And he says to them in, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, you intended harm for me. You meant evil for me. But God had a bigger plan. And he brought me to where I am today for the salvation of many people, including you. And that might be a word of the Lord for someone in here tonight. People are doing things in your life, and it doesn't make sense. And your world just seems to be spinning out of control. You need to know that there is a but God moment coming into your world, into your story. He has a plan and a purpose for you. The psalmist, he said this in Psalm 73, 26. He said, my health may fail and my spirit might grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. His is mine forever. Here's one more Paul says right here. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, because of his great love, made us alive. I feel like I'm speaking to someone in here tonight. I don't know who it is. But you're here, and your situation has the word impossible stamped all over it. And I'm here to tell you that that might be the outward perspective of things, but God is with you, and God can make a way where there seems to be no way. You might feel trapped tonight, but God can cut a path through the sea like he did for the Israelites. You might feel alone, but God said he will never leave you nor forsake you. You might feel dead inside, like I was just describing. You've got it all going on the outside, but inside you're numb, you're dead. But God can breathe new life into you and help you overcome. You see, for every hopeless situation that we face, there is a but God promise to help us overcome it. And that's what this is. We were dead. But because of his great love for us, he saved us and made us alive with Christ. When we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. You have been saved by grace. This is an absolutely enormous topic. It is one worthy of our attention. When did God intervene for us? When did he decide to help us? When did God step in and save, it, save us? Was it when he saw us trying? Did he save us because he saw something worth saving in us? Did he put his love on us because we deserved it or because we had somehow earned it? No, no, no. That's not what we read here. If anything, the scripture we've been looking at would indicate the opposite. We were deserving of his wrath. So why did he save us? Verse 5 tells us he did it because of his great love for us. And why does he love us? I mean, what, we, we struggle with that. I don't know if you do. I do. I wrestle with this. You, you saved me because you love me, but why did you love me? And you know what the Bible's answer is when we ask the question, God, why do you love me? You know what he says? I love you because I just love you. It's funny. When you look at the Israelites and their story, Here's what God told them about why he chose them. You know how God selected the Israelites? He chose them out of all the nations on the earth. This is what the Lord said to the Israelites about why he chose them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He said, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Why did he choose them? Because he chose them. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. And why does he love you? Because you're his. See, I've got four kids. 
And if you were to ask me, why do you love your kids? I could list a hundred different things that I love about each and every one of my kids. But at the end of the day, the reason I love my kids is because they're mine. I just love them because they're mine. And that's what God would say about you. He loves you because you belong to him. And this work of salvation that Paul is describing here, this work that God has done in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is a work of his sovereign grace. Verse 5 says, it is by grace that you have been saved. He echoes this again in verse 8 when he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what is grace? Let's unpack that word for a moment. Grace simply defined as unmerited favor. Now, when you talk about something that is unmerited, you're talking about something that is unearned. If you can earn it, it's not grace. You see, when you earn something, when you work for something, what you receive in in response is a wage, right? That's something you've earned. You earn a wage. Or if you compete in athletics, you might receive a trophy or some kind of prize for your performance. When you receive recognition for service or when you do well at your job, you might receive an award. But when you're incapable of earning anything, in fact, when you deserve the opposite, when you can win no prize, when you deserve no award, and yet you get one anyways, that's called grace. It's a gift of God. It's not something that comes from you. It's something that's bestowed upon you gratis, freely. In Gore Vidal's book about President Lincoln, he tells of a time when Lincoln was convening with some of his advisors. This was towards the end of the Civil War, and it was clear by this point in the war that the North was going to win. And and so they began to discuss what they should do with the South when the inevitable happened and they surrendered. And so many of his advisors were throwing out suggestions about different ways that they could make the South pay. And Lincoln took it all in, and he mused over it all. And then he, after considering their suggestions, said this, I will treat them as if they never left. You know what that is? That's grace. Grace is what we don't deserve. Grace is what the father showed in the story of the prodigal son. After the son returned, having squandered his inheritance on parties and riotous living, and he comes back with his tail between his legs, and he stands before his father, and he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son, and he can't even make his way through the rest of the speech. Why? Because his dad is already putting a robe over his shoulders and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and he's smothering him in kisses. He was restoring his dignity dignity. He's restoring to him his place within the family, and he's treating him as though he'd never left. And that's exactly what the Father has done with us. He treats us just as if we'd never sinned. So for all of those times that you find yourself beating yourself up, trying to just castigate yourself over the sins that you've committed, and you just wallow in this pit of self-loathing and shame. For all of that, the Bible would say, God's grace has already covered that. Your sins have been forgiven. In Luke 7, Jesus tells a, a beautiful, very short story that highlights the absurdity of God's grace. He said this, there was a, a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other one, 
he owed 50 denarii. So one guy owed a ton of money. The other guy owed just a little bit of money. But neither one could pay. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. He freely forgave. You know what that is? That's grace. They both had sums, debts that they had incurred. Neither one could pay. This guy's debt might have been a lot bigger, but neither one had the means to pay. And at the end of the day, they were both freely forgiven. I love that phrase. They were freely forgiven. But the more I was thinking about that, the more I realized they, they might have been freely forgiven. That's true on their end. But it wasn't free for the creditor who forgave them. There was a cost that was incurred. There was, there was a price that was paid. There was, a, there was a debt that was absorbed, and it fell on the creditor to absorb the loss of those debts. And so too, as we think about our own lives, it, the forgiveness that we experience, the grace that we receive, it's free to us. But by no means was it free to give it to us. He paid a huge price. He paid dearly. And we're freely forgiven because it cost him and he paid everything. It's been said he was bruised in order that we might be blessed. He was crushed in order that we might receive the crown of righteousness. He was stripped in order that we might be robed in his righteousness. And that which was free to us cost him everything. He hung on the cross and cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. That's grace. I love the definition of grace that defines it as God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. And this message of grace has never been more relevant, and it's never been more important. And here's why. We live in something called a cancel culture. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We live in a cancel culture. Now, now, that word, that phrase wasn't around when I was younger. When, when you talked about canceling something when I was younger, you would maybe cancel a dinner reservation, or you might cancel a flight. But we didn't cancel people back when I was younger. But that's become a thing. Now, where, where you can be, be um, identified as someone who said the wrong thing, or did the wrong thing, or someone might dig into your past, and they might, might pull up some crime or, or some sin from your past. And, and the moment that is found, you get canceled. And when you get canceled, it's like they hang on to the sin, and they push the person away. Cancel culture does that. In cancel culture, there's no room for compassion, no room for mercy, grace, forgiveness, or restoration. But then I was thinking about that. You know what? The Bible also talks about this, this cancel culture thing. It just, it's that it flips it around. It talks about it in a different way. Check this out. This is sec, uh, first, uh, sorry, Colossians 2.14. It says, he forgave us all our sins. Somebody say amen. amen. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. You know what's been canceled? The payment for your sin. You know what's been canceled? The penalty for your sin. You know what's been canceled? The power of your sin. And in its place, God gives you grace. He gives you peace. He gives you hope. And he gives you power and hope and love to overcome. That's how this thing works. That's the new cancel culture. He works with us on the basis of his love, not on the basis of our merit. 
And why does he do it? Well, he explains in further detail in verse 6 when he says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that. So he did this so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Love this. But I'm going to be honest with you. I was reading verse 6, and I'm like, wait a minute. He raised us up, and, and he is seated. We are seated. That's present tense with Christ in the heavenlies at this moment. That is like, it just kind of scrambles my brain. I don't, I don't fully grasp what that means. But as I wrestle with it and as I prayed through it, at the very least, I think what that saying is, because God is outside of time, we're limited, finite creatures bound by time and space. God isn't like that. God is infinite. That means he's in the past, he's in the present, and he's in the future simultaneously. So what he's saying is, because you are a believer, because you belong to Christ, because you are in Christ, there's that phrase that Paul uses over and over again. Because that's true. As I look into the future, I see Jesus, and he's seated in the heavenly realms. And guess what? You're right there with him already. This is a present reality. What that means is you have security regarding your future, according to the Apostle Paul, if you're a believer in Jesus. It's not like, I hope I make it. You know, Muslims, they never have the assurance of their salvation. They could do everything right. They could visit Mecca and Medina. They could pray five times a day facing east. They could live a great life. And at the end of the, their life, all they can hope for is that, oh, I hope I did enough. I hope I make it in. But the Bible gives us such radical assurance. It says, you know what? <laughs> You're already at this moment seated with Christ in the heavenlies in the future. That's what, uh, what a done deal this thing is. And guess what? I love verse 7. I was tripping out on this. My wife says, what's the favorite part of your message? And this is it. Verse 7, he says, and he did this in order that in the coming ages, he might show to us the incomparable riches of his grace, that in the ages to come, God can just continue to pour into you his love, continue to show you how good and awesome and amazing he is. And I was thinking about that because as you think about this world, everything here is, is finite, right? And we just talked about that. But God is infinite. And what Paul's trying to convey here is this idea that there's always going to be more of God for us to explore. In this universe, all we know about is limited supply. Eventually, with every single thing in this universe, you will eventually reach the end of that thing. And that's true of every single thing in the universe. Uh, just as an example, I mean, let's go macro lens here. Um, the universe, according to the latest estimates, and it's always changing, and it's always expanding, and it's always growing. But did you know that they, scientists and astronomers tell us that the observable universe, as they refer to it, is about 46.1 billion light years in diameter? And I'm thinking, that's crazy big. But that's also kind of weird, because like, if you're saying it's this big, then what's on the other side of it? <laughs> and they're saying because the universe had a beginning, and it's expanding out, it's constantly growing. But it does have an edge to it. So even the universe, as big as it is, has an end to it. I don't know what's on the other side. God, definitely. But the point is, as big as space is, even space has an end. 
And perhaps before we talk about exploring every nook and cranny of outer space, we should just start by exploring the planet that God has given us here. So like I was I was reading about our own oceans and how it wasn't until 1960 that we reached the deepest part of the ocean. It's a place in the Pacific. You've probably heard of it. It's called the Marianas Trench. It's it's thousands and thousands and thousands of feet deep. It's deeper than the the tallest mountain is tall. So Mount Everest is about 29,000 feet tall. And you could put Mount Everest into this chasm and still have a lot of water above you. And it wasn't until 1960 that these two guys finally made their way down because the pressures are so great at that depth. And they spent about 15 minutes down there, and then they came back up. Since that time, one other guy has gone down. In the same amount of time, we've sent thousands of people to the top of Mount Everest. Thousands of people have stood on the top of the world. And and even a dozen people have stood on the moon. But only three people have been to the deepest part of the ocean. We have no idea what the depths of the ocean holds. In fact, we've only explored about 5% of our oceans. That leaves 95% left for us to explore. I mean, in all of human history, that's how much we've explored. We know more about the surface of Mars than we know about the surface of the bottom of the ocean. That's how big, that's how deep the ocean is. And yet, even the ocean is, is finite. Eventually, we'll map it, we'll explore it, we'll know what's down there. And conceivably, we could do the same thing with space. If we had enough time, if we had millions and millions and millions of years, we could explore every nook and cranny of outer space. But you know what Paul says here that's so cool in verse 7? He says, in the ages to come. In other words, in 100 billion million years, you're still going to be learning new things about God. You're never going to get bored with him because he's infinite. There's always more to unwrap. There's always more to find out. There's always more to learn. There's always more of him to explore and experience. Why? Because his grace is fathomless. His mercy is bottomless. And his love for you is endless. Now, that gets me jacked up. Just knowing that, man, we have all of eternity and we're never going to get bored. We're never going to reach the end of God. He goes on in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So it is faith working with grace. It's by grace. It's through faith. We put our faith in Jesus and what he's done. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So we touched on these, this concept earlier, but I'll just add this at this point. And he, he says it's by grace so that no one can boast. That's good news for all of us. It means there's not going to be anyone in heaven bragging about what they did to punch their ticket to get into heaven, right? I mean, can you, heaven wouldn't be heaven if you could get there based on your own good works. I mean, nobody wants to be around that guy. <laughs> like, well, what'd you do? Oh, you're, let me tell you about how I got here. And so Paul says, no, 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 God just made it by grace. Nobody gets there any other way. It's all by grace, and it's through faith. You say, Jesus, I look at what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago and how you took not just the sins of the world, but it was my sins you were paying for. It was the price paid for me, and and I, I received that gift. That's the faith part of this. 
And Paul says, then you're crucified with Christ. Now it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ living in you and through you. Now, this is what gives us so much perspective. This is what helps us with the present, knowing what we've come from and knowing where we're going empowers us in our present. Here's what Paul, here's how Paul puts it. He goes, now, now, now are you ready for this? For we are his handiwork. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, now that you know who you are, now that you know where you've come from and where you're going, now you're prepared for this message of what God has for you right now. And what is that? It is this. You are his workmanship. Now, the word in the Greek, some of you may know this. It's, it's the Greek word poema. Obviously, we get our English word poem from Paul's word there. In other words, Paul's saying, you are his work of art. You are his Mona Lisa. You are his magnum opus. You are God's masterpiece. That's what he's saying in this verse. You are a work of art. Now, we think of ourselves as a mess, but it's important that you grasp this concept. Perhaps it's never been more important than it is now. Now, let's talk about art. What is art? Well, art is, is subjective. Art is beautiful. It's valuable. And most importantly, art is an expression of the innermost being of the artist. When you create art, you're giving people a window into your soul. So when Jimmy or Kayla writes a song, they're giving you a window. They're expressing what's inside of them. When Ryan Jackson paints a painting, he's giving you a picture of what's in his soul. And it's, it's hard as an artist to let someone see your soul. And here it is. Do you like my soul? <laughs> and this is God saying, you are my work of art. You are an expression of who I am. And that makes you incredibly valuable because you mean something to him. I was watching this documentary recently, part of this documentary. It was called Note by Note. And it's, it's the story of how a Steinway piano gets made. You guys know what a Steinway piano is, right? They're the most famous brand of piano in the world. Any top pianist is going to be playing a Steinway piano concert musicians all around the world covet these instruments. And, and the process to make one is meticulous. It's painstaking. It takes over a year from start to finish to create just one piano. It takes over 12,000 hours. There are over 12,000 parts. And, and in this documentary, it just walks you through the whole process from the cutting down of the trees to the bending of the wood to the tightening of the strings to the playing of the notes. And, and each part, you'll note that it is meticulously labored over by crafted artisans, master artisans. In fact, if you look at a Steinway piano, over 80% of every Steinway piano is hand-built, built from the ground up by hand. Why? Because you can't just mass produce on an assembly line something that is that unique. It takes the, the, the touch of a master craftsman. And you need to know that that is exactly what is true of every single one of you. You haven't been mass produced. You're as unique as your fingerprint. There are so many parts of you that you don't share with any other person, all the way down from your DNA to your earlobes to your eyes to your fingerprints. You have been handcrafted. You're a one-of-a-kind work of art. 
And God has a calling on your life. He has good works that he wants you to walk in, things that he wants you to do. There is a song that he wants to play through you. And note this. It is a song, it is a note that only you can add to the symphony of praise to the king. So why are you sitting around trying to be somebody else and trying to sing their song and trying to be like them? God's already made one of them. He doesn't need a duplicate. He didn't mess up with them. What he needs is you. He needs you to play the unique note that he created you to play. And when you play your note well, it adds to this chorus and this anthem of praise that just crescendos throughout and reverberates throughout all of eternity. The big idea here. Amen. You can clap for that if you want. The big idea here is that God created us on purpose and for a purpose. Listen, you're not an accident. You're not the result of just millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of just fortuitous accidents. And wow, here you are, you know. No, no, no. You have been created on purpose. You've been knit together, the Bible says. And you've been created for a purpose. You say, well, what's my purpose? I'm ready to write it down. Well, that's for you to discover. That's for you to find out. But here's what I can tell you about that purpose. It's bigger. It's better. It's more beautiful than you can even ask, think, or imagine, because that's how God works in our lives. It's a good plan. It's a good purpose. Through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God has a bright future for everyone in here. And it's like a scavenger hunt to wake up every day and say, God, what are these good works that you have mapped out for my day? There are things, divine encounters, there are good works that he's just going to lead you into. And this is what makes walking the Christian life so extraordinarily exciting. Guys, this is your story. This is where you've come from. This is where you're going. And it's why you're here. You're here to make a difference. You're not here to just take up space. You're not here to just kill time. You are here because God created you on purpose and for a purpose. That's your story. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if that's my story. I still identify with the first part of that story, where I just feel dead inside, dead to the things of God, dead to the voice of God, dead to the plan and the purpose of God. Well, you can find your way into this story tonight. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes as we close in prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to step into this story, get swept up into this great, amazing, transcendent story the author of all of human history put it on his divine calendar that you would be here tonight so that he could speak directly to your heart. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected Lord, he is here in this place. We're not just here to to read some letters that were written by a guy a long time ago to some churches that have no bearing or impact on our lives. This book is a living book, and it's a sharp sword that cuts and divides between the soul and the spirit and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so I know that by the power of the spirit of the living God, God is doing a work in some of your hearts tonight, and he's calling you to himself. And just like Lazarus, he's speaking your name, and he's saying, come forth. Come out of that grave. It is time for you to step out of the tomb and into the light. I have a 
plan. I have a purpose. I have a calling on your life. Tonight could be your night. All you have to do is respond and by faith receive the gift of salvation. You say, how do I do that? Well, it's so simple. It couldn't be easier. You just admit your need. You acknowledge that you need to be saved. You know, it's funny with lifeguards. They'll train you that as long as the person you're trying to save is fighting and struggling, you, you can't save them. You can't save a person who's trying to save themselves if you're a lifeguard. And what they advise you to do is wait until that person has exhausted all of their energy. And when they have no more strength left to try to save themselves, that's when you can swim in and then you can save them. And God could have been waiting for this moment because this is the moment where you raise the white flag and you say, God, I'm ready. I need to be saved. I can't do it on my own. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I don't have what it takes. but I cling to the cross. I throw myself at your feet. I receive the gift of salvation. If that's the desire of your heart, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to know that you too are going to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and for the rest of eternity get to experience the incomparable riches of his grace, if you want to walk in those good works and experience that song coming from your soul, then all you have to do is receive it. And you can do that by simply praying a prayer like this. I'm going to say a prayer, and I'd love for all of us, those of you who are believers and those of you who you want Christ in your life, you want this. Let's just say this together. Mean it from the depth of your heart. And if you do that, God will come into your life. He'll move in, and he'll forgive your sin. He'll Remove your guilt, he'll take away your shame, and he'll replace that with his peace and his righteousness. Say, dear God, go ahead and repeat it after me. Say it together. Say, dear God, thank you for saving me when I didn't deserve it, though I couldn't earn it. I freely receive it. Thank you for salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now help me to walk with you all the days of my life until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.